Welcome to episode 5 of 3 Security Buddies. We made it to 5. I'm your host, Matthias Bruti, and I am joined by Paul. Hey, Paul. How you doing? Not bad. I'd love for uh, Texas power systems to function properly, but here we are. Hey, you know, if you are tired of a third world country, you can always move to uh, Washington. Anyways, and we're also joined by Robert Clark. Cheers, mate. Cheers, mate. How's it going? Um, I'm doing fine. You know, I, I always had electricity this weekend. How are you? Yeah, you know, it's great. Uh, power didn't go out once. Awesome. I guess the hippie lands are amazing these days. I blame Elon Musk. But, well, yeah, he did move to Texas and, you know, electricity started to uh, all of a sudden stop working. Anyways, we had some follow-up. I actually had some personal follow-up about my rant. Ironically, after doing my rant, I had to go to the supermarket the next day and I realized that they actually had, not listened to me, but actually listened to Reason. And, you know, they actually are enforcing masks for everybody again, which make me somehow feel good about, like, not being crazy about my logic. I had a very interesting conversation as a result of my rant with a bunch of buddies, uh, some of them positive and some of them very... Uh, Let's just say that I decided to cut the conversation short for the sake of my friendship. Another interesting follow-up is that I guess people are listening to us again. Uh, WhatsApp actually will not be removing functionality, uh, which is very interesting. Uh, I guess I have to find another excuse to move my buddies away from it. But, you know, I'm pretty sure that soon enough I'm going to get another pretty good excuse to tell people hey, let's move to another platform. I don't want to use WhatsApp anymore. I mean, I find this one fascinating just because they spent a lot of time saying that it was very important that you accept this new terms of service because they need it to be able to provide certain aspects of functionality. Uh, and then they backed away from that. And now they're saying that no aspects of functionality are actually compromised in any way by not accepting the new terms of service, but they will continue to... Uh, to uh, I forget their exact phrasing, but... It, they're basically, they're very politely saying they are going to nag you endlessly to accept the new form of the service. I mean, it's good for the consumer in the sense that like, okay, you don't have to accept this. You can continue to use it under the auspices of the way you were using it previously. Uh, it also calls into very deep question how, how, uh, how straightforward they were being about their reasoning and their requirements for providing the service. Going back to your point, they've been doing this and you know these changes have been there for years so did they found a legal way to say yeah we don't care like we don't you don't have to accept the new terms because magically the lawyers now say that the old terms actually still cover us from doing what we want to do without even you having to accept new terms otherwise either that or they found some magical new software way of implementing all of the features that they say they could not implement it using your old terms to you again which Seems very odd to me. So this week, Paul, I think it was episode one or episode two that you actually were talking to us about your drive into the or interesting, you know, sort of exploration of Rust into your project. And it seems that you actually decided to include even more Rust because of all of the amazing feedback you got when you did the first time. Yeah. So this is all kind of part and parcel of the way that the Python Cryptographic Authority thinks about projects. But like, in general, we want to have the most secure things we can have, and we want to do that using the tools that make sense. We have historically used OpenSSL to do everything inside of cryptography, even the non-cryptographic operation, because OpenSSL has an ASN1 parser and it has an ASN1 writer. However, those things are the least reliable of any of the things OpenSSL has inside of it. And so over time, we've been aggressively looking for what the solution would be. Uh, and we've eventually, or rather, we eventually settled on Rust. So for the last while, uh, I guess it's now been about almost six months, we've been slowly transforming pieces of our ASN1 parsing and our ASN writing code into Rust. Uh, so we're like progressively oxidizing it effectively, like pulling it out of OpenSSL and replacing it with Rust code. It's not like the traditional oxidization model and that like we're not converting OpenSSL itself, right? We're just making our calls to different places and then we're continuing to feed the things that need to be fed into OpenSSL. For example, the end game of this is that we will parse all of our ASN1 structures for X509 and also generate all our ASN1 structures using Rust. But when we perform the actual signature operations, which is to say we, you know, we hash over the TBS uh, certificate or whatever... Um, uh, serialized form we need to do, 
and then we pass that hash to be signed using a cryptographic operation, that will still occur inside of OpenSSL. Uh, that has a few advantages to us. One, we don't have to write any cryptography code, which is not actually a thing I want to be writing, even though I do it on occasion. And two, uh, OpenSSL is a battle-tested, tried-and-true thing for this sort of operation. And three, you can get, uh, you can maintain certifications like common criteria, FIPS, things like that that various enterprises care about. This is a process that's going to continue for quite some time still because X509 is a complex spec and ASN1 is, is also, I don't know what the word I want to use for it is. I actually think ASN1 DER encoding is good, uh, which is probably the hottest take you're going to hear from me anytime uh, in the next few weeks. But I don't actually have a problem with ASN1 in canonical DER form, but that doesn't make it simple. The reality of ASN1 inside of X509 is that not everything is actually encoded the way it should be because various people have implemented things that have been partially broken in the past. And so you have to figure out what the balance between technically correct and interoperable actually is, and then figure out how you can continue to slide the needle towards uh, technically correct harder over time. So that's stuff that lots of players in the ecosystem have been doing, but we have historically just piggybacked along with them, and now we're active, active participants in this. Ultimately, I'm also interested in how to make OpenSSL improve on this front. But that has a bunch of additional challenges. Um, there's probably a whole episode in and of itself inside that. But like the, the core problem that OpenSSL has is that it has an ASN1 API that does a lot of allocations, is poorly tested, and is built on top of a bunch of really nasty looking macros. And so it's very easy to make mistakes. It's not very well tested uh, in a variety of edges. And actually several CVEs in the last few years have come out of code paths that literally had no coverage at all. and because it's all those things, you can actually also like compose together ASN1 that doesn't make sense. Like it doesn't enforce logic on what you're trying to accomplish. So I'd like to see a better API come out of that. And if there's going to be a better API, then I'd like to see that API written in a safer way. But those things become very difficult in OpenSSL land because OpenSSL needs to run everywhere. Uh, and if it doesn't run anywhere, everywhere, that's a problem. So that means that if you want to introduce Rust into OpenSSL, then you probably need to figure out a way to make that optional. But if it's optional, who's going to use it? So like there's this chicken and egg issue that like we have to kind of grapple with before I could ever make real forward progress on that. Ultimately, OpenSSL is expected to compile pretty much everywhere. Maybe we could make assertions that like, hey, we're only going to care about tier one level targets, tier two level targets. And the people who care need to go ahead and invest in LLVM or they need to uh, invest in Rust GCC uh, so that we have much wider backend targets to be able to support it everywhere. The Rust GCC front end work actually is coming along pretty nicely now. Uh, and actually just recently, like in the last week, uh, there was a experimental PR passed to, uh, or, sorry, rather there was an experimental PR opened on the systemd repository that starts to add some Rust there. That becomes interesting because system D is used by Debian. Debian runs on almost everything under the sun. And so their concerns around this, of course, are based on the fact that LLVM targets are not as broad as GCC targets, which then begat the Rust GCC or brought the Rust GCC things back to the forefront, uh, for me at least. And I realized that they're actually pretty far along and that might actually be usable not too long from now. Uh, when that becomes the case, then these types of conversations become simpler. Uh, and I'm going to be very excited to see that happen. So quick question. Uh, so systemd, I, I, I also heard and I've seen, you know, uh, blog posts about the, you know, kernel also starting to embed potentially Rust. So it seems that, you know, more and sooner than later, you will actually get your sort of, you know, quote unquote, dream come true. I think you would almost could give a Rust compiler for granted, which will effectively, you know, remove a burden out of you guys and, and allow you to concentrate on just developing on Rust without having to, you know, make sure that all of these platforms actually do support it because by default they will have to support it because some of their more basic components like a kernel and systemd would actually require them anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Like if we can get to that world, then this will massively lower the barrier to entry. It will massively expand the ability of Rust uh, to be used in all these uh, environments. Right now, there's only one compiler that really is like that, and that's GCC. And GCC's 
limited number of front ends mean basically that's just C and C++ and not even all that much of C++. It's mostly just C. And so whenever somebody writes something that they just want it to run everywhere, and maybe they don't consider what the implications of that are, but they would just like it to run everywhere, then it makes it C. And so it's a very important step forward if we can write things in safer languages and have just as wide a support. When it comes to like, so is it Rust or Golang? Like which one actually you think actually supports more platform? Like I, you know, I, I use a little bit of Golang, but I don't use it in any other platform like that is not common, right? Like Linux, OpenBSD and, um, and Mac. So I, I honestly have not looked at it. But when I look at the list, like I, I've seen it very extensively, list of cross-compile options. Uh, obviously I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't support pretty much everything else that C does, but to the point of that's your, that's your project to begin with. Actually it's used like across so many edge cases uh, of platforms that it's even worth you guys worrying about it. I mean, I don't want to, I, I, I would prefer not to have to worry about it, uh, but for better or worse, the world has decided that the support of niche platforms is partially predicated on languages chosen by the broader world. So I would say that if I have to make a choice, I would drop support for niche platforms because I would rather move security forward than worry about them. But that may be a false dichotomy. It might actually be possible to support niche platforms simply by having the language mature more, right? Like if it turns out that Rust GCC's front end makes it so that all of GCC's targets now work, that is huge. And it's very, very useful because GCC's targets are far broader than Go. They're far broader than LLVM. Uh, it compiles on anything. Uh, and so if you can get there, that's wonderful uh, because it is very useful to have a language that can do that. If you force me to pick, I will always drop support for niche things that don't matter. But I would like for it not to have to be that kind of choice. Anyways, on... Do you, I mean, have you guys actually make a PR out of that? Have you guys getting any pushback? Because I know that on the on the first sort of Rust, uh, uh, the first couple of Rust PRs, you guys actually did get a lot of pushback from some people. I mean, I, and I assume if I remember correctly, mostly was because of some of the reasons that you were mentioning before, that with regards to compatibility, having not having a Rust compiler by default, etc. Have you guys actually published these, or this is still like a work in progress? So we got most of our pushback when we did our first release that included Rust. Uh, that release uh, is still the 3.4, is still our latest release. Um, we have an environment variable that allows you to disable Rust support because we, we actually didn't include anything that absolutely hard required it, but we made it so it built by default. We did that explicitly so we could find the problems in the ecosystem. So that is still technically our latest release. We've been pushing down the path in our main branch for quite some time. The next release will hard require uh, Rust and will not have any way to disable it because we've now ported significant amounts of our functionality into it. We don't have a release date for that. We're probably going to release whenever we're far enough along. Like there's, I could release tomorrow, but I I don't think I'm going to bother until we've got all of X5 and I'm ported. So it's probably going to be a while longer still before we actually do that next release. And I suppose that given that now it's hardcoded, you are going to see a little bit of like significant amount of pushback or... You know, I assume we'll get another round of it when we do the next release. Them, right? uh, I think the primary complaints have already come out. Uh, what you're going to see the next time around is the set of people who missed it last time, and then a redux of the set of people who are still mad about it. Uh, but the vast majority of the ecosystem, based on our version uptake data that we get from PyPI, uh, again, talking about open source telemetry, we do at least know what versions people download. Uh, the vast majority of our downloads come for our latest version. And that strongly implies that the vast majority of our users are not actually having problems. Uh, so we're, we're pretty pleased with that. Well, you don't know whether they actually are enabling and disabling that flag. I mean, by default, you assume that most, most users don't even check or like actually care about a flag. But there could be also another set of people that actually did consciously disable that flag and now they're no longer going to have that option, right? Correct. Uh, but they've been told that that's the case. There's, there, it's in the change log. It's in messages when you compile. It's, there, we put a lot of messages in. So people who can't move forward for the moment, they can pin. Uh, and that's fine. Uh, but you, but you, you, you can say, I told you so. 
many times. I mean, that the unfortunate reality of software development is that at some point you have to move forward and we are happy to ease the transition as much as humanly possible. Uh, we've taken several pieces of feedback about where we can make it better or could have made it better. Uh, and we've generally made quite a bit of stuff better in this uh, 3.4 release. We're up, I think we're up to 3.4.8 or something of that nature. The ultimate answer is we're moving to Rust. We're not going backwards. It is a moral imperative to make software more secure. I mean, you're preaching to the choir over here, right? Like, uh, I think the three of us agree that, you know, security is extremely important. So, you know, we're happy that you guys actually have taken a, a strong posture on it and, and you're moving along. And then the project that you guys have built, you know, security is a key component and it's not an option by any means. Um, and you said many times that most of your vulnerabilities are, you know, memory leak related. So it kind of makes sense that you actually ended up going with a, a language that with Rust, which will not completely remove them, but effectively reduce the potential amount of vulnerabilities that you might introduce significantly. Yeah. Anything that can give me automated guardrails. I love it. Moving along. And, you know, you, you mentioned telemetry and today I was actually, I, I was posting Twitter, enjoying the sun. It is sunny in Seattle. So you got to abuse those few days that you get. I was reading Twitter and I actually came by a post of a uh, a YouTuber, uh, MKBHD, and he was talking about, you know, that he remember in college that some professor told him about, like, the, the importance of actually introducing context into data. And ironically, it resonated significantly with me uh, in the security industry because when it comes to the security, uh, I mean, security organizations or security teams, when it comes to present data, we tend to not present context a lot of the time and we ended up like on weekly, you know, on weekly updates or when you were presenting to uh, upwards or even to the exec level, a lot of the times people don't have the context uh, or they don't have the luxury of having the context that you have on, on, on a daily basis. So we present data like, hey, you know, we found 50 vulnerabilities this week or we found uh, 5,000 vulnerabilities or, you know, we did X reviews or we caught, you know, whatever. And over and over and over, I always continue to hear what does it mean? Like in what context? Like what, what, what 50? Why not 100? Well, why not 20? Like, is it good that you found 50? Shouldn't we find zero? Like, shouldn't we you finding in the case of a vulnerability? Or, and the same thing, like, you know, with severities, et cetera. I completely agree that we, we know with, with that comment on the tweet that, and he was talking about, his example was about, you know, related to specs and like whether a company was worth, you know, X or Y and what it, why it actually matter. And uh, I myself, you know, continue to provide a lot of, you know, feedback when, when we, were, we were dealing with these issues in the security industry. I said like, hey, you know, for example, for us, providing trends is actually important. At least a trend will actually, it will effectively give you some sort of historical context after like what, what you found last week or what you found last last month or last quarter versus what you find today. And at least you can have some sort of histogram about it. But also, I think in the security industry, we fail to abstract ourselves out of the problem uh, in a lot of cases and present it to an audience that is not an expert. And we ended up failing. And a lot of the times we ended up not getting the resources we need or we don't get uh, the support we need or we cannot su successfully you know, implement something we want to implement because we're just not correctly communicating. I think part of it is the fact that we're not, you know, a lot of us are not great communicators and also the, or potentially the fact that we, ex we give or expect that everybody else in our audience have the same level of understanding of why security is important or what does it mean to find vulnerabilities, or et cetera, right? Like we don't, we don't, we don't generate presentations or we don't expose data assuming that the listener is actually completely not aware of what we do, which in most cases, it is the case. People might understand security, but they're not experts and they shouldn't be experts. You should be able to present them without it. So it, it just resonated. And I think it's, it's a very interesting topic for me because if you cannot present what you do well, like, to some respect, you, you will never be able to continue to do it uh, or, or continue to justify why it's important that, you know, that you actually do introduce some sort of return on investment 
in which you do, or just just a simple fact like, hey, like why your team doesn't even exist to the point. So, anyways, I don't know what you guys think, but like it, it's when I saw it, I just felt like, and it resonated very deeply in my bones because I'm like, oh yeah, I completely agree with you. This is this is what I see day in and day out a lot of the time when I'm looking at somebody presenting something. I, I think, generally speaking, it's 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 been my observation over, I don't know, ten years, that um, security is a hard space to reason about. And there's really big challenges when it comes to transcending that sort of that that barrier between security people and between you know more business oriented executives. And I think one of the challenges is that in most things in the software space, modulo user interaction, it's easy to be definitive. Or it's easy for you to most of the time write very, very specific measurements of specific things. And in the security space, often we're talking about risk and about managing that in a way that is very hard to be explicit. One of the things that you know I, I learned from reading, um, I think it's how to measure everything that or something like that, is that one of the things that book actually helped me realize is that all measurements. There's no such thing as a truly accurate measurement. It's all down to your tolerances. It's all down to, you know, how well something is specified and the ability of your systems to measure. So, and, and you know, to give you uh, the most extreme example, even in a computer, like when you decide to measure a bit and say it's a one or a zero, you still can't guarantee that there hasn't been a hardware fault or some transient other failure that has flipped the result of your test. On the other extreme, we have, you know, security people sticking their finger in the air kind of trying to tell you how much risk there is but actually if you apply a little bit of rigor to that if you start you know I don't, i'm not going to over index on this stuff now but there there are mechanisms you can use that allow you to use expert judgment as a quantitative measure within a system of metrics that allows you to say to start saying with some confidence how likely you think a thing is to happen and how much risk you think that that thing is going to expose you to. You're absolutely right. Trend lines are helpful. It's also very, it's very easy. It's very easy to lie with this type of data or to mislead with this type of data, especially in the security context. And it's also possible to make things seem really, really big. So the, the, the most simple example I can give for a judgment call on metrics is take vulnerability management. Do you want to report all the machines that are patched or all the machines that have vulnerabilities. If you're reporting the vulnerabilities, are you, what's your count? Are you reporting the number of vulnerabilities that exist? The number of instances of those vulnerabilities that exist? Which one is more meaningful? If you run a, a homogeneous fleet, you know, using Ansible or something, uh, make sure everything's running the same. Why is it more important to tell someone that you've got 100,000 installations of a vulnerable library versus one. Like these, these, these are the types of things that you really need to think about if you're putting together like a very sensible security metrics program. Um, I don't know, Paul, what your take on this is, but, um, you know, I've been doing kind of enterprise level security stuff for about 10 years now. And I've never come in, gone into a new place and seen this done particularly well. The short answer is I haven't either. <laughs> I don't think I have a lot to add to what you and Matthias have said. Um, I'll just state that, yes, context is everything when it comes to a set of data. You can use facts to twist. You can twist facts almost any direction when you free them from the context in which they exist. I'm strongly in favor of being able to actually understand why the numbers that you're presenting to me mean something and what I can actually do with them. Like to your, your previous point, right? If, if the answer is 100,000 versus one, what does that tell me? Well, it's possible it does tell me something, which is that even though we have this orchestrated fleet, patching this one vulnerability will take a lot of time because I can't do all that in parallel. But maybe that number, like that requires a lot of context for understanding why that 100,000 and one are the same number. So like you probably should just divorce those things entirely and talk about them in a different fashion because it should not require underlying expertise on 
all your systems to understand the number that's being presented. And, and, and that's where I was going, right? Like, I'm, I'm not even judging whether the numbers are correct or incorrect. I, I, I'm assuming most of the time the numbers presented are being correct, but without proper context, that data is almost useless, right? Uh, your example, Robert, is, is, is a very good one. The, the other one that I usually give people is, you know, if you're a pen testing team or app review team, you know, you're, you're, there's stuff you... There's stuff you do and there's outcome, right? Like so, you usually ended up doing reviews, and you produce out of those reviews results, and mostly, you know, naturally in the form of like tickets or like vulnerability findings. The number of reviews, the number of vulnerabilities you found in the case of vulnerable magic, there there could be completely irrelevant without proper context. Um, one of the things that I, I always tell people is like, okay, like what what you need to in, introduce to actually make this thing somewhat reasonable is Okay, how many reviews you're, you're intaking, okay, and how many you actually can produce, how many on average uh, a person does. So, you know, you can sort of say, hey, here's the average uh, throughput of my team. Uh, how many vulnerabilities do they count? Like, what are the criticalities and the severities of them? Like, uh, do they actually all impact the same thing? So showing and starting to build trends and context and provide understanding of like, hey, you know, we intake 100 and we do 40 reviews, oh, now, you know, uh, somebody that doesn't understand immediately tells you, oh, like, so you can only take 40% of the work, like, so how are you going to cover for 60%, you know, quarter over quarter? And, and you can start inferring information that you don't need to be a security expert, uh, and you can be a manager or an executive in order to provide either advice or understand, like, what is the current risk. And, and conversations can easily translate to, abstract conversations of the problem that don't have to be tied to security itself. And I think that's where a lot of, a lot of us, and to your point, I, again, being in the industry and never seeing anybody doing uh, uh, very well. Some of them do a little bit better, some others do extremely bad at it and poorly, but nobody that I've seen and, and coming to the, even when I was a consulting or, you know, like I was, when I was consulting or I was like literally working in those teams, I'm, I never seen anybody say, oh my gosh, like these guys like completely nail it, right? Like they, I, I, I could go in a meeting without any context and I could come out completely understanding what is the state of their status. And, and when I saw that tweet, I was like, okay, yeah, like this, this is, I, I don't think this is something that affects like you trying to show me uh, and giving you facts about a product, uh, th this is this affects pretty much every field. And I, I have a feeling that it's not only in the security industry, probably affects many other fields. I, I think, Robert, your comment about software might make it easy because people are more used to it and, more, and there's more tangible. So it's easy to translate to, even if you don't have proper context, it's easy to get away with a, uh, with a less than, than ideal presentation. But with us, everything we do is so risk-based, it's so subjective, and it's so based on, like, even even if it's data, it's based on, at the end of the day, on people's opinions or feelings about specific things, because risk, you can measure risk very precisely, but there's always a component of it that is intangible, and it's on the eye of the beholder, right? And you could, you could, present the same, and to your point, vulnerability management, right? You could, you could present exactly the same data. Hey, we have, you know, 50,000 patch systems and we have, you know, 50,000 unpatched systems. You could say, oh, we're doing a very good job. Or you could say, oh, well, you know, our job sucks right now. Like we have 50% of, of, of things unpatched. And we say, hey, we actually be doing pretty well. Like, it, it, and it also would depend on the context. If your context show that in the previous quarters you had 90% patch of a fleet, you know, of patch fleet, you're like, oh, okay, yeah, we are probably not doing well. But if you actually had 10%, hey, we're not doing great, but we're probably doing better. So anyways, at, at the end of the day, uh, for me, it's, it's one of those things that I continue to see the done incorrectly. And I continue to be fixated and usually tell people like, you know, write better, write good stats, write good stats. They're actually, they're not there only for your, you know, for you to present to your boss or, you know, upwards. They're also there to help you drive a better program. And either, either you being a manager or you being an IC, I think it helps everybody. Moving along, uh, I think it was this this past week was actually presented, but um, at least one of them. But AM there was recently two AMD attacks on 
on the virtual machine protection system. And Robert, uh, you are you're the foremost expert here, or at least you're the one that actually took the time to read fully the two papers, which I think Paul and I did not. And I'll, I'll accept that hardware security is not my forte. So uh, can you can you give us a pretty good uh, TLDR for the uh, two non-hardware security experts here? I shall try. Um, I'm also not a hardware security expert, or I actually don't claim to be an expert in anything. But we'll we'll stay to, true to form and and just make it up as we go. Um, the only there are there were two. So WooCon just happened last week. Um, during it, two uh, two presentations were made. Uh, one called Severity, which is code injection attacks against encrypted virtual machines, and one called Underserved Trust. Uh, which is exploiting permutation agnostic remote attestation. Um, the only paper that's, that I'm aware of being available is for the second one, which was released about a week before the conference. And that was, uh, the, so that's the one I've taken a look at. Um, so that, that paper was written by uh, Luca Wilk, Florian Syke, uh, Tomas Eisenbarth, and Jan Wickelman. And I apologize if I got any of those uh, pronunciations wrong. So before we dive too deep into it, you probably talk a little bit about what SEV does. So one of the concerns that customers have when moving to cloud is trust of the hypervisor. So most, most consumers of cloud use virtual machines on top of computers that the cloud provider owns. And within there comes a degree of trust. You have to, if you're, if I'm running a cloud, you as my customer need to trust that I'm not doing things like scraping your memory to, you know, identify the know, customer details or something else that you would consider pivotal to your business. This goes a little bit beyond just um, rogue cloud providers, because obviously it, it's very unlikely that any of the big clouds are actively trying to subvert their user base. But there are other people that might be able to do nasty things with hypervisors. So. History is littered with examples of what are called uh, either VM escapes or hypervisor breakouts, which is where there is a bug in the kernel or there's a bug in part of the virtualization system that allows you as an attacker to, um, to escape from the virtual machine and take control of the host. These are relatively rare. They're very complex and very valuable in terms, you know, we, we tend to talk about the value of exploits as a, a useful term for like how important they are. And these are very, very valuable exploits as and when they become available. So cloud service providers need a way to protect and a way to prove to their customers that A, the cloud provider is doing all the right things or is limited in their ability to do the wrong thing. And B, even in the event that somebody is able to subvert their infrastructure, the operations of the virtual machines and the other things that are running on the compute hosts are sufficiently isolated and sufficiently opaque such as to frustrate an attacker. So AMD has this technology called um, SEV, um, which started with, um, started with SME, which was a basic memory encryption for the whole machine. SEV introduced this idea that um, each virtual machine is encrypted with an individual key. So when I say virtual machine, I mean, uh, virtual machine encryption. Uh, I'm talking about the encryption of the memory that the virtual machine is interacting with. So AMD does this by establishing uh, a number of a number of system properties. But basically, um, the idea is that once a virtual machine is launched, the memory that that machine is interacting with is encrypted in a way that even the hypervisor itself can't go and get access to, and the way that it achieves that is with a secure processor. So there's actually a, a kind of a, an on the side bit of silicon. It's in the main die, but like you can consider it on the side, which is a very, it's, it's separate. It doesn't answer to the main CPU, if you will. Like the, the main CPU can't, can't force it to do something bad. And it's with this secure, secure processor that you negotiate the keys and things that you will use for your virtual machine. That in some ways can be considered kind of similar to, to TPMs from Intel. The main difference is that TPMs only encrypt a very small amount of memory. So they're in, the, in the use case for big applications, they're not useful other than to maybe you could store some secrets in it and interact with it that way. 
but you couldn't store an entire lot. You couldn't install like a huge database application within it, right? So that's the that's the big difference. So you give us a, a pretty good um, summary of you know what actually SEB is. Now, what what is the specific vulnerability or issue that that this uh, team of people actually found, and why is it interesting? The thing that they found uh, there's a there's a there's a part in this chain which is about establishing trust. So when when you start a virtual machine on a machine that's running SEV, what you want to do is end up running in a trusted execution environment, a TEE. So the way that you have to do that is you um, you start with a small image, small like a UEFI image normally, which is like a, like a BIOS. And the hypervisor itself, like the machine that's running the hypervisor, will pass this to the coprocessor and will say to the coprocessor, can you give me a measurement for this? And it will report the measurement to the virtual machine. Now, it does so in such a way that the virtual machine, you know, if I'm running code in the virtual machine, I can verify later that I actually did come up from a known good image. Like I can cryptographically prove that the thing that was initially, uh, initially loaded into memory was correct. Because that thing that's initially loaded into memory then knows how to measure further bigger parts of the system. And then as you go through your bootstrap, there's other things that can measure bigger parts of the system. So it's kind of an inverted pyramid of trust and everything comes down to this very narrow point at the very start, which is the UEFI. Now, the, what's interesting is that um, Luca uh, et al. found a problem with the way that this image is loaded and read. So this affects um, Epic first uh, and at first and second gen processors. Technically, it affects third as well, but can be mitigated using um, SEV SNP, which is secure nested paging. The, the the real meat of this is actually a thing that uh, I struggle to get around, get my head around um, because I didn't think it could be this simple, but apparently it is. Computers are complicated, as we all know, and they one of the ways that they try and deal with managing this uh, complication in the SEV uh, loading sequence is that um, they allow you to load the UEFI binary. It's actually a, an open virtual machine firmware, but it's, it's normally a UEFI binary. Um, they allow you to load it uh, different blocks at a time. And the measurement that is taken of the, the whole, so if imagine, you, imagine you have an image that's A, B, C, D. Um, you could, you could load those blocks into memory serially as A, B, C, D. You can also load them as, you know, you could swap the middle. You could do A, C, B, D. Because, and this is where the vulnerability lies, the real vulnerability lies right here, which is that both will mesh, give you the same measurement. Uh, something is going on internally that means it's measuring blocks and understands the offsets and will come back and give you the measurement. I don't understand why it works that way, but that's my interpretation from reading the paper. We know two things. We know firstly um, that we can load blocks out of order and we know that we'll get the same measurement back. Now, if you did this naively, I'm sure you would end up with a broken image. And I'm sure that actually uh, the thing I'm gonna talk about in a moment regarding this attack probably also ends up with a, an image that is severely crippled in some dimension, just not a dimension that was important for, for what they were trying to do with the virtual machine. Now. The reason it's crippled is because if, if I'm trying to tell a narrative, A, B, C, D, and then I swap parts in the middle, I no longer have that narrative flow, right? Something has changed. And essentially, when we talk about executable code, it's just this like branching narrative of stuff. So we, the interesting part is the blocks are very small in relation to the size of the image, which gives me a lot of opportunities for, for changing things around. So the last part that I need to explain to pull this together is a concept called uh, return-oriented programming. So it used to be the case that when you were attacking uh, a binary, when you're trying to break a, a machine, you could just, um, if you could take control of the, the memory in the stack, you could re redirect EIP, uh, the um, executing instruction pointer, I forget. But basically you can um, redirect flow of an application by overwriting part of the memory, which is, describes that narrative. Lots of different technologies have come into place to make that hard. Things like stack canaries and other bits and pieces. but. I'm not going to over-index on that because the, the main thing to know is that return-oriented programming is a way that once you have an initial foothold in an application as you're trying to break into an application, 
instead of trying to load lots of your own exploit code, you start just redirecting this execution pointer to blocks of code, parts of the narrative that exist within this other application um, to achieve your ends. So a very, very common way to use return-oriented programming in, a, in an attack is one of the first things you need to do to be successful in attacking uh, most systems is understand this, the layout of memory. And I mentioned there are things that frustrate attackers, and one of those things is uh, ASLR, uh, address space layout randomization. So one of the first things you could do as an attacker, you're looking for, they call them ROP gadgets, like you're looking for little nuggets of useful capability. So if I can redirect that pointer a little bit, and if I can redirect it in a way that just allows me to start printing out memory, then I can start using that to understand the layout of memory. And from there, I can then figure out how to stitch different parts of the system together. So return-oriented programming, uh, a way to think about it is just you can jump around inside an existing application to combine the the code that already exists in ways that the uh, Authors never intended to achieve whatever your objective is. Okay, so that was a lot. Now, why is that important here? Well, it's important because my understanding is that this system did not validate. It would validate that it had all of the blocks that it was supposed to have, but not that they were in the right order. If I can find blocks where there are useful instructions at the very start or at the very end of the block, and then reconstruct the image. So instead of saying A, B, C, D, reconstruct the image so that I have these useful blocks, these blocks that I have uh, instructions I want at the start or the end, I can start taking control of the execution flow. And I only need to take control of the execution flow enough to say, print out um, a key or copy that key to a different register or do something like that, right? Um, at that point on, I've shown that I can do enough to then extract secrets from this environment and to introduce a capability that the TEE, the trusted execution environment, is supposed to cryptographically guarantee that I can't do. So if I'm a bad guy in the, in, in the compute system somewhere or if I'm a rogue cloud provider, I can create a situation where you ask me to load a binary. I say, cool, I'm going to load it. I mess about and I swap the Bs and Cs around in such a way that allows me to start extracting data from it. I can give it to you in the system. The SEV system will tell you that I loaded exactly the binary you told me to load, which is kind of true. I just rearranged a bunch of the insides to give myself an advantage. Um, and from there, you know, there's a lot of very, very clever uh, research that's gone into this. But from there, I can then just compromise um, the, 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 uh, the SEV system overall. Um, so you know, once, once I can, can control the flow in that UEFI, I can start just pulling more and more bits of information out and you know creativity is your only limit there. So I guess I need to ask you two things. One, uh, what are your thoughts on this? But before that, um, I know you guys have looked at some of this stuff. Uh, I haven't seen the presentation, I didn't attend Woot. So does this track with your understanding of, of the issue? When I was reading about Rob, I, I actually couldn't believe the, like the, the order of the uh, blogs would actually would not alter the product like i i was extremely surprised because it seems something so naive that i, I couldn't believe it was the case uh I, I i do not know enough about hardware to understand whether it actually it makes sense from a from a software or from a hardware or software design perspective but um when i was reading i'm like oh okay yeah it makes sense if you can alter them like you can potentially order them in such a way that you know, you will hit the, you could get the pointer to where you want. And then it's just a matter of like, continue to destroy, even if it ended up crashing, but continue to destroy the image enough up to a point that it's actually useful for you. You get the information that you want, or you, you know, you could potentially, I don't know exactly what else you could get out of it, but it, it made sense. But at the same time, like, and I think this is your feeling, the, the feeling that you expressed, it was I don't. I'm saying naive, but I don't. I don't know how to express it. Right? It was. It felt so wrong, and so obviously wrong that I was like, okay, there. It it made me feel that I was misunderstanding it because like it couldn't be this. It, it couldn't be this or this. Not not simple, but it couldn't be this wrong. So I haven't dug in at all. So I'm gonna have to just believe you guys in terms of what's what's the assertions about what the vulnerability is. 
But I will say I have seen many cryptographic vulnerabilities, obviously, in my time. Uh, and in general, cryptographic vulnerabilities fall into two distinct camps. There are the incredibly complex ones that are just amazing, elegant things that just amazing anyone could ever find. And there are the far more common, oh crap, this appears to fall in the latter camp. The latter camp is also the much larger camp. Like there are far more of these types of mistakes than there are of these amazing, super awesome uh, like hacks that just blow your mind. So like chunk reordering, sure. Like you can see how such a thing would happen because there is an assertion that you need a cryptographic proof of, of like validity, sure. But then there's separately a requirement that you need to be able to do this chunking to do some other task. And that requirement may have come in later. And you can imagine that it was not revisited as a part of a holistic analysis of the system. So they came through, said, yep, we've implemented the cryptographic requirement. And then somebody later said, oh, actually, we need to be able to do this because we need to be able to have smaller chunking to make something more efficient, whatever. And they didn't come back around and go, oh, actually, if there's chunking allowed, then we need to actually uh, make sure that we key it such that they're strongly ordered and that there's no reordering, truncation, or dropping allowed. Because previously, those weren't problems because you always just had the full thing every time. The like, cryptographic requirements are made by the medium in which you operate under. And if the medium changes, it's not always true that people reevaluate. It's unfortunate. It feels foolish. But you can see how it could happen. And frankly, these sorts of mistakes happen all the time. It's just very unfortunate when they get codified in hardware. That, that, that explanation actually makes a lot of sense now to me. <laughs> it does. And one thing I will say is through reading through this, you know, AMD have not, not rested on their laurels at all. You know, they came out first with SME, which as I say, it was just this like full memory encryption. Then they had SEV, which was VM based encryption. Then SEVES, which was encrypted not only the memory, but also registers and context changes. So there's a lot less that was visible to, to the, the hypervisor in terms of what was going on inside a VM. And then um, the SNP, the secure nested paging. So like they're clearly invested in making this an iteratively better story. And in my opinion, you know, all, all systems are rendered insecure at some point. But the fact that they continuously, like generation by generation, are now putting out better and better technologies here when they're not necessarily... SEV was already, way, in my opinion, way better than anything Intel was doing in this space. The SGX stuff, uh, you know, one of our three li listeners, one of them will be passionate about SGX. I I'm sorry, that's still a solution looking for a problem. So my point is that um, at least uh, with SEV, they were already out in front of the market in terms of good hypervisor security technologies, but they seem to have continued to iterate from that point to the point that when this vulnerability came up, it's bad. It's as Paul says, it's in hardware. So that's super unfortunate and they can't go back and, you know, fix um, the first and second gen. But I'm really encouraged by the fact that, you know, this brand new fresh piece of research came out and they were like, and the third generation that is yet to release, but is, um, I think it's in manufacturing now, so it's pretty soon, right? Um, it was fixed in that, not because they'd found the problem, but because they'd introduced additional security and rigor and depth into the way they were approaching this, such that it was effectively mitigated by other means, by other security uh, advancements they'd put into the platform. That really, really impressed me. I, I guess we're saying that it's like both sides of the equation are actually doing a pretty good job. Like vulnerability would come and go, no matter how good you are. Uh, at the end of the day, with I, at least personally, the way that I measure a company is in, in the way that they respond to a vulnerability and in the way that, you know, going back to my previous topic, if I see a trend <laughs> of, you know, how they actually act, whether they continue to improve the platform. And again, I'm, I'm not an expert. I on, on hardware, but based on your comments, it seems that they're actually doing they're doing their they're doing their homework, right? Like they're they're actually caring about the customer, they're caring about the platform and they continue to innovate, you know, but they're gonna have issues. Hardware security issues suck because you cannot really go back and, and you know, for the most part you cannot go back and patch them. But to the point of the researchers, I, I think the, the the work is incredibly clever. Like because it's not only about the cryptographic vulnerability, it's also about realizing that you can actually do some sort of a rub like attack to it and actually being able to not only say, oh, you know, you have a vulnerability here, I'm done, and literally going through the, the whole chain and actually finding a uh, somewhat of a proof of concept and, 
and and publishing it, talking about it, and and making the the industry um, a much better place. Not only just by bitching about the vulnerability itself, but actually going uh, far and beyond, and uh, you know, sort of uh, following the uh, you know puck or get the fuck out kind of uh, a model uh, here. Uh, which uh, I actually like to see those things. I like to see research papers where they not only stop at the research, but they actually uh, come up with like proof of concepts and like real proof of concepts that actually have potential real value uh, and, and show the potential harm that, that the vulnerabilities or the theoretical vulnerabilities they found actually how they become real. Uh, my, my complaint here, it's like, uh, I'll give you a, a counter example, is when I see a lot of these side channel attacks when it comes to like, you know, how do I exploit, uh, you know, some cryptographic AS thing on a chip and they're like, oh yeah, like this is theoretically can happen if you're not doing anything by encrypting the same secret over and over and over for like an hour uh, because that clearly has very real life implications, right? And I'm like, okay, yeah, you, you have a vulnerability, point taken. But like you you didn't spend the time to actually like actually find a very valid, like real life proof of concept that actually farther proves your point. Like I'm not saying you don't have a, a valid vulnerability. I'm just saying that, you know, potentially you could do a little bit better. And I think these people actually did did that homework. They they actually ended up publishing something that it was worthwhile reading. It was very well reading. Uh, again, completely over my head. I'll, I'll be the first one to accept in a lot of aspects because um, it's not my expert, my areas of expertise in security. But nevertheless, it felt that it was uh, it was very interesting and pleasant listen to read. So moving along, but continuing to be in hardware, which means I have no idea. Again, uh, Paul, you actually shared with us um, some interesting vulnerability on the Apple Silicon, which this one is also kind of like in the land of like, oh, huh, interesting. That, that Somebody looks like they dropped the ball. Uh, uh, do, you, do you care to at least comment a little bit sure. about it? I mean, I think this one's, it's more comedy than anything else. Like this is the sort of thing that is typically just listed as CPU errata. Uh, but uh, Mark Han, who's been doing a lot of the work for uh, bootstrapping Linux on uh, Apple M1 chips uh, via the Asahi Linux project, uh, published a website called Miracles. Uh, where he kind of made fun of the way uh, modern vulns get branded, but also he pointed out an actual flaw that he discovered, which was that there's effectively exists a register that you can use as a covert channel to communicate between multiple processes on a machine. And that breaks the entire security model of, of how it's supposed to work, right? Like there should never be a, a way for you to have multiple processes communicate communicate covertly without the parent like host OS being capable of under of seeing that data or stopping that communication. In practice, this doesn't really matter because of course, if you can like a covert data channel is not actually useful. If you have two malicious processes on a machine, there's lots of other things they can get up to that are far more interesting and they can communicate in in ways that it, it effectively doesn't matter. Uh, so this doesn't matter from a security perspective other than like it's a thing that you would expect to be fixed either in a future stepping or in like an M1X, M2, some processor of that type. Um, but other than that, it's it's more of a piece of entertainment than it is a vulnerability. It is a piece of entertainment that actually happened to be reading and described and published in a hundred times better than most vulnerabilities that actually are real. Like I'll just say that I I couldn't I couldn't I could not stop reading it. Uh, the tremendous amount of facts with humor mixed in between make it like one of those like you know kind of like page turners when it comes to a book. I, I literally I I went when you actually share the website I I could not drop it. I was reading it on my phone and it was incredibly incredibly like not convenient, <laughs> but I could not stop reading because I was just laughing every other sentence. Uh, even starting with the like should you be worried? Probably not. Um. Which, I mean, he, he's very honest at the same time, right? Like, yeah, I did get a CVE, but, you know, like like you said, exploitability, meh, whatever, but still a bug, and here's the details. And I'll say that this is one of the first vulnerabilities in a long time that, and you, you know, my uh, my grandpa, old fart, rant about naming vulnerabilities, but this one deserves it, and the name is amazing, and, and, and even the logo is great. So I, I just 
wish him the best. And, and hopefully, you know, by the amazing work that he's doing in supporting uh, Linux to, to the Apple Silicon, uh, that he continues to either find more vulnerabilities or make this thing uh, run pretty smoothly. Uh, I know that it will be uh, Apple Silicon as a hardware, regardless of, you know, uh, Mac OS or whatever. It's a very, very fast platform. So it will be very interesting to, you know, for people that actually do not want to run Mac OS to be able to run Linux on it. So yeah, I, I look forward for the work that these these guys are doing there. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a lot of value in this type of reverse engineering. And even though I personally don't have a lot of interest in running Linux directly on bare metal on M1, I'm very excited that people are doing that work. Yeah, I mean, and, and we might not be interested, but like I, I'm pretty sure that a lot of people like to have uh, Linux running on their MacBook Airs instead of Mac OS for whatever reasons, right? Because that's their OS of choice or because they believe in open source uh, to a certain point, and et cetera, et cetera. Anyways, that was a short one, but I, I, I felt that it was worthwhile talking about it because it, it was just amazing. And, and and it was funny because it's like, yeah, you can only do zero one, but yeah, I guess zero one is enough to pretty much slowly but surely transmit pretty much everything, given that we were living in a binary world. Um, moving along. So, Paul, we get to this time of the day where you get to rant. Uh, Robert and I stole your, uh, your sort of section the last two episodes. And uh, I'll, I'll risk to say that our rants were not as good as yours. So... Uh, we're back to you. Uh, you actually were, as usual, complaining about something significantly throughout the week. And this time happens to be also be a piece of hardware, which I don't see in your ears. I see other brand now in your ears. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what happened? Sure. Uh, yeah. So uh, the two of you can obviously see that I'm wearing a different pair of headphones. Uh, I do like over your cans for when I'm doing like long sessions, the in-ear things start to bother me. So historically I've used Bose QC35. Bose QC35s are Bluetooth wireless headphones that have what used to be best in class and is still quite good, uh, like active noise cancellation technology. And they, you know, they work pretty much the way you expect. They have one interesting property to them though, and that's that they have this on-off switch that operates as a momentary switch. That wouldn't matter, except that it turns out that because of the way that they fold and close into the case, the pressure goes directly on that switch. And over time, almost every single person's switch failed. And it fails in the most obnoxious possible way. Uh, what happens is you turn the headphones on and they work just fine. You turn the headphones off, which is a physical switch off to the side. And then they turn back on at some point later, sometimes a few seconds, sometimes a few minutes, sometimes a few hours later, they turn back on and then they run themselves dead. There's no way to know that this has happened unless you're looking directly at the LED on it or you wait until you try and use them again and they're dead. So I've had this happen to mine finally and I took them all apart and spent a bunch of time messing with it put it back together and then had the same thing happen again. So that was obviously frustrating. I actually dismantled them two more times before I finally got the problem uh, apparently resolved. But in the meantime, I bought a pair of AirPods Max in a fit of rage, uh, which is obviously not the most uh, budget conscious choice, but I was actually directly drawn to the idea that they don't have an on off switch, uh, which people listed as a drawback, but I find to be an advantage given what I've seen with these QC35s. Uh, so ultimately, like my, my rant here is that Bose designed a system that puts pressure on a part that is itself prone to failure. They could have designed this, one, not to put pressure directly on that, but even if they need to put pressure on it because of whatever design choices they've made, they could have used a switch that's not actually momentary, such that when you disengage it, it's off and stays off instead of having like a software-based concept of what on and off actually means, even though you have a physical switch. If you're going to have that, you need to never fail. Like power buttons can't fail. When they fail, it's the single most frustrating thing that could ever happen. So while I fixed mine, and I've actually even bought some new ear cushions because I'm going to get them back up to full quality, I'll probably not buy another Bose product for quite some time now because this is a design flaw that they, did, they didn't fix in the QC35 twos, 
and they've shown no inclination that they believe it to be a serious problem, even though it affects almost every consumer of these $350 headphones. And you went with the Apple headphones. Right, which cost nearly twice as much and are less flexible in a variety of ways. So who's the real sucker here? Probably me. Uh, I also own a pair. I love them. Um, Yet again, I'm not using them right now. I'm using my whole (laughs) wire headphones. Um, But I I actually totally get you. Like uh, I had a similar thing with Sony, not in headphones, with laptops. I used to use Sony laptops uh, when I was in college. um, And I loved them. And what brought me to a Mac was actually that my trade, two Sony laptops failed me on their power supply. Um, going bad and, and just couldn't take it anymore. And, and I went and I bought an, I, I use Apple. And then uh, that's the rest is history, as they say. But I, I've never actually bought, I think I've stayed away from Sony products altogether for very long years. But, you know, it has no no sense whatsoever, but it was that rage of like, hey, you failed me twice and I don't want to use you anymore. Um, but I think to your point, like, it, it's, it clearly sounds like it's a design flow because you, you or, or a consciously we don't care flow like you know if they break by a, a new pair but would you say that uh, they could actually have solved the problem in a, uh, in a different way like I mean not the Apple way which is less bottoms less nothing we will do everything magically for you but like what do you think like uh, how, how others do like I know that in the in the field of like uh, headphones that actually have like, you know, uh, noise canceling, there is like the Sony's, Bose, and, and I think the other ones are like uh, B&H and, and a few others are also good. And now Apple is sort of going to the market by being, uh, having twice less features and being twice the price because it's Apple and it's like beautiful metal. And hey, they look beautiful. Uh, I, won't, I won't say that. They actually are very comfy. But uh, they're kind of heavy. Like I, I, can, I personally cannot use them more than like two hours. But because uh, my head starts to hurt, and that might be because I have a big head, so they have to stretch a lot and they put a lot of pressure on my ears. But um, you know, going back to the to the bows, like what, do you, why why do you think like I mean, what would they should do differently? Because I know this there's is just a run, two. but. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's two things they could do that would be simple. Like one is move the switching, switch positioning so that the switch is not such that you always put pressure on it when you have it in case or it's being used. You could put it on the bottom. Um, there's a lot of switch positions that would not have direct pressure on it, which apparently would or would likely lower the failure rate. The other one is they picked a switch that actually kind of is Apple-like in that it has on and then there's you can push it past on with a spring-loaded thing to put it into like a, a like a Bluetooth discoverable mode. That didn't have to be one button. They could have made those two buttons. And by making them two buttons, they could have made them extraordinarily more reliable because then it doesn't have to be this fancy switch that turns out to have a bunch of failure modes that we don't want. So basically, it's either move it or make it simpler. Either one of those would prevent this failure. Uh, and so... I'm sympathetic to the fact that you may not have realized that this would be a failure mode when you built the QC35s originally. But the QC35s came out several years ago, which themselves were like three or four years after the QC35s came out. This was a known failure well before they released it. They made a decision not to change the design. That's what I don't find forgivable. Uh, and so this is not something that randomly happened to you. This is very, very common according to the internets. Correct. If you Google QC35, like, turns back on you will find thousands of people who have this problem oh well yeah so i guess they're not listening to their people because their headphones are not working <laughs> yeah yeah my humor sucks well um anyways you, you should have gone with uh they're not listening to people because the active noise cancellation is too good oh that's even better there you go i'm gonna leave the i'm gonna leave your comment uh, anyways, I don't, I don't think we have any more topics for this week. Um, it's been awesome talking to you guys again. Uh, I hope that you had a, a very long, uh, pleasant long weekend and, uh, catch you next week. Maybe, well, maybe not Paul, but like we might actually have to temporarily replace you. Is that correct? You're going on a vacation, you, whatever that is. You've got, 
you've got me for the next two weeks still, uh, as long as we record early on the following week. But uh, yeah, after that, then then I'm turning into a pumpkin. Ah, oh, beautiful. And uh, well, I I hope that you enjoy being a pumpcake for whatever weeks you decide to enjoy, and uh, and see you both again. I actually thought that the, this was your last episode until you got on vacation, but like, hey, it's been three days of actual PTO for me, you know. So I'm uh, completely lost it. I don't even know what day is today. <laughs> Anyways, um, have a good week and see you next week. Bye.